issue of suffering in our lives. I thought I'd start with a painting. In my early 20s, there were a number of years where there was this one recurring image in my mind that pretty much summed up what it felt like to be me, and it's pretty much that painting there. A black sky, a stormy sea, Bailey able to distinguish between water and air, and me caught in the middle thinking, am I ever going to find my way out? I'm going to speak briefly on the problem of pain this evening, but considering my own experiences, I just wonder if I may start with a little caveat. A little while ago, I had the privilege of hearing Professor John Lennox speak on this theme, and he said something that I think is very insightful. He said, cancer looks very differently to an oncologist than to a young mother with three months to live. There will be some of us in this room who, as we're coming to this topic, this is a head question for us. We're here because we want to talk about the concepts, we want to think in abstractions, we want to understand the philosophy of a good God in a world where there is so much evil and so much suffering. But there will be, unfortunately, inevitably some of us here for whom this is not a head question at all. We're here because we have heart questions. It might be that that painting expresses for you the engulfing reality of your life right now. And I just want to ask you to bear with me as I will try and attempt in the next 15, 20 minutes or so, some of this may seem a bit abstract if that's your reality right now, but I'm going to try and do my best to do the very beginnings of addressing this issue both from the head and from the heart, and I'll start with the head. Let me spell out the problem in a nutshell. If God is all good or all loving, he would want there to be no suffering. And if he is all-powerful, he'd be able to make that desire come to pass. And yet suffering exists. If God is all-good or all-loving, he would want there to be no suffering. If he's all-powerful, he'd be able to make that desire come to pass. And yet suffering exists. Doesn't this mean that an all-good, all-powerful God doesn't exist or to stop speaking in so many double negatives for a moment, doesn't this mean that the Christian God, the Christian faith, is false? And I'd like to just pull together a few of the strands that might come together to form something of the Christian response. Firstly, the question of being all-powerful. Many people, when they think about the concept of a God who is all-powerful, think that we are saying that God can do literally anything at all that he wants. And I wonder if it's a little bit more complicated than that. Being all-powerful does not include the ability to do the logically impossible. Imagine if someone came up to you and said, God is all-powerful, can he create a square circle? The answer would be no, or more precisely, the answer would be that the question doesn't have a meaning, and therefore there can be no answer. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them two other words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things, but not entities. 
It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when you talk it about God. God can do miracles. God can do the supernatural. God can intervene in your lives in wonderful ways. God can do what would be impossible for us, but he cannot do the logically impossible because there's actually no such thing. Now, at best at this point in the evening, you're thinking, okay, I guess this could be considered interesting for some people, not seeing its direct relevance to the conversation that we're having tonight. So let me move on to a second question, and I'll ask this. What would it look like if there was a God of love and he wanted to create a world in which we could experience love meaningfully? What would that world look like? What would it look like for God to create a world in which we could experience love meaningfully? I want you to imagine a scene. Imagine there's a man and a woman, and the woman is crying, and she manages to stammer out the words, I love you. Does it or does it not make a difference to your understanding of what it is that you're witnessing if I tell you that the man is holding a gun to her head saying, tell me that you love me? Of course it does. It makes every difference. Michael Ramson puts it like this. The question of love is not an issue of power. The question of love is not an issue of power. If there is a God of love who wanted to create human beings who would know and experience his love, who could know his love, who could love him back, who could experience love one to another, Whatever else he creates into that world and into that universe, one thing is true about those human beings, they'd have to be free. Because love compelled is no love at all. And the question becomes, how have we used that freedom? Have we used it well? To what ends have we used that gift? God did not create suffering. God did not create evil. He created us, and he created us free. That's part of it. I want to come back to this idea of cancer looks very differently to an oncologist than to a young mother with three months to live. Sometimes we think that if we take the Christian God out of the problem, out of the equation, we solve the problem. And in a sense, and to my mind wonderfully, that is right. The reason that is right is no other religion and no other system of thinking in this world makes the claim that God is both all-loving and all-powerful. No other worldview makes that claim. Only the Christian claim is that God is loving, good, and powerful, and hence the philosophical problem arises. I think there are many ways in, that, in which that problem resolves and dissolves in different ways. But the point that I want to make is the philosophical problem, the, the portion of the oncologist, if you will, all of us know that that's not the real problem. 
This room is not filled because we all had philosophical problems with suffering. The real problem of suffering, the young mother with three months to live, the fact that we're all broken and this world is a mess, that's the real problem of suffering. And my question is, what happens when you take the Christian God out of the picture for the real problem of suffering? Comparison can be the mother of clarity, Os Guinness put it that way. And I'd love to just take a moment to give you just in one phrase, four different worldviews, four different ways of looking at the world and what their suggestion is, what their solution is to the problem of suffering. And I borrowed this from Simon Edwards. He's the UK director of the Zacharias Trust. He puts it like this. Atheism says suffering is natural. Go with it. Islam says suffering is God's will. Submit to it. Buddhism says suffering is an illusion, ignore it. Hinduism says suffering is deserved, so live with it. Now, often I'm very careful when you reduce a, a worldview to a soundbite, there's a danger of caricaturing it. But actually, I think Simon Edwards has done an incredible job of capturing the nub, the orthodoxy of these worldviews, and quite frankly, they do not speak to my experience. Atheism says suffering is natural, go with it. Well, not in my experience of suffering. There was nothing natural about some of the things that my family has gone through. Islam, it's God's will, submit to it. Buddhism, it's an illusion. I find that, quite frankly, insulting in some of the situations that I've witnessed or been part of. It's an illusion, get over it. What you really need is to be enlightened out of experiencing what your experience is, because it's not real. And Hinduism, it's deserved, so live with it. I want to suggest that when we look at comparisons of the real problem of suffering and what the options are as we come to deal with it, that if you take the Christian God out of the picture, you are left with fewer answers and less hope and that the problem remains. Let me take two strands at the heart level. I'm gonna speak to the cross and to the concept of relationship. Firstly, the cross. One of the things that I find compelling about the Christian faith is that it's the great leveler of humanity. The Bible tells us that we all stand on the same ground before the cross. In other words, that no one person gets to look at the other and say that you are the problem. All of us have transgressed a law that has resulted, us, resulted in us being in the broken state that we are in. In my experience, particularly in this kind of society, many of us feel, well, yeah, I've done some things that are wrong, but transgress the law seems a little bit much. You know, I'm, you know, well, I've lived basically a good life. I haven't done anything catastrophic or traumatic to anybody else. I'm basically a good person. We think that when we have transgressed the moral law of God or broken God's law, that that's a little bit over the top and, you know, no harm, no foul. There wasn't massive implications involved in what we've done. Let me borrow an analogy from Michael Ramson. I couldn't come up with a better one. I found it very helpful. He says, 
Imagine if one day we decided that we were going to break the law of gravity. He's speaking about this idea of breaking the law of God, breaking the moral law, and how it doesn't work quite as simply as that. And he talks about how imagine one day you're going to break the law of gravity. You've made the decision. And you put a big S on your chest, wear the obligatory red cape. I don't know why we do that. If you've watched Incredibles, you'll know that capes are dangerous. You don't need them in your superhero outfit. Put the red pant, you know, tights on, pants outside your trousers. You run to the top of a 10-story building because you're going to break the law of gravity. You run, you jump. What will you break? <laughs> the Bible tells us that we turn our backs on God and tried to break his law but in the process broke ourselves whilst proving his law and the Bible tells us this has broken the heart of God and it was to rescue us to save us to answer our cries in the dark that Jesus Christ came to earth lived the perfect life the life we ought to have lived And on the night he was betrayed, took some bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Over 600 years before Jesus walked this earth, the prophet Isaiah had said that there would be a Messiah that would come into this world who would die for the sins of this world and that in his death he would carry our sorrows this Messiah who would empathize, who would step into our pain, who would become part of our pain, who would take it on himself, carry our sorrows. No other claim, no other worldview makes that claim, the empathy of God. But it's not just empathy. I mean, that would be nice. It's not nothing, but it's not that just that God says, oh, there, there, I feel your pain. He carried our sorrows and he took on our sin. In other words, the root of the problem, the fact that we broke this law and have broken ourselves and took on its consequences on the cross and in his death, that's why Christians celebrate the death of Christ, overcame the consequences, overcame the power of that brokenness and made possible restoration, reconciliation. The cross is God's great sign to us that he has not left us to it, that he carried our sorrows and that he bore our sin. One final strand, relationship. One of the most prevalent commands of the Bible is fear not. Fear not, fear not, fear not. Repeatedly in the Bible, fear not. For those of you who've read that ancient text, you'll know that the sentence doesn't end. For everything will be well in your life. Fear not, because if you just believe in me, then I will make everything like roses and perfume. In fact, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible has the words, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I want you to notice it doesn't say, Though I skip on the mountaintops where there are flowers. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? And the answer is, for you are with me. 
And that's how the phrase ends every time. Fear not, for I am with you. The offer of relationship. Os Guinness puts it like this. He's a political social commentator in the States. He says, we may at times be in the dark about what God is doing. We are not in the dark about God. It's a claim that can only be made of the Christian God. Because the Christian God is offering relationship. He's saying, you can know the God at the center of the story. He's saying, I'm making myself available to you. You can come and know me. We can be in relationship. And I will be with you no matter what happens in your life. I will sustain you. I will give you comfort and peace and grace to withstand the trial. The promise of relationship is that one day on the other side of eternity, there will be actualized joy and peace and perfect communion with God. But on this side of eternity, we can begin that process. We are not waiting to begin a relationship then. The relationship, that invitation, stands today. If you want to know him in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, that invitation stands today. The offer of relationship. I started with a painting, let me end with one too. This is the painting on the screen in a second, it's called Light of the World. It's painted by Holman Hunt. The title is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 12, where it says, I am the light of the world, it's Jesus speaking to his disciples. I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But the painting actually depicts words that are written in the book of Revelation. Here I am, says Jesus. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, then I'll come in and sit and eat with them and be with them. It's the symbolic offer of relationship. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. And the thing that's so profound about this painting is that you might not notice it at this detail at a distance, but there's no handle. Holman Hunt purposely left the handle off this side of the door, implicitly saying, look, the handle is on the other side. Jesus stands at a door with no handle on his side. The handle is at yours. The handle is in your heart and in your will. The decision rests with you because the Christian faith says that Jesus Christ does not force his way in. He stands at the door and knocks. And the question remains to you, will you open that door? Do you want that relationship? Do you see in yourself the need for that saviour broken for you? Do you want to know what it is to have the actualized peace and joy on the other side of eternity but relationship now? Fear not for I am with you. And it occurs to me there are really very limited number of choices in response to that question. You might be sitting here and you hear that knock on your heart. Some of you might be even as I'm speaking you hearing that knock. You sense at your heart there is this tug, this pulling. And it might be that you want to say, yes, 
I want to open this door. I want to experience what it might be like for Jesus to come in and be in my life and to sit and to eat with me. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, to come into my heart, to make himself at home, for me to know what it is to be reconciled to him. Or it might be that your answer is no, he can knock all he likes, but I'm not opening this door. That's an answer too. Or it might be that you just feel, I just need a bit of time. I am interested. I hear this knock, but I need a bit of time to make a decision. I need to find out more. And I'd just like to pray for all three groups of people, wherever you might be in this room. And if you want to say yes to God, you could just echo the prayer that I pray for you, just where you are silently in your heart. And for others, we can just give each other the privacy of a response. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll just direct the rest of the evening. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came on to this world and took on our brokenness and made a way for it to be overcome. Thank you for the offer of relationship. I pray for every person here whose heart response to that knock on the door is yes. That even now they might experience something of that sense of Jesus walking in. I pray for them that they would know that sense of thankfulness. Thank you God for what you've done for me. A sense of repentance. Sorry, God, I know I have contributed to the brokenness of this world. I don't need convincing on that. And please, please come into my life. I pray for all in the room who are thinking, I just need a bit more time. I pray for your peace in their lives, for opportunities to explore, for a sense of adventure and curiosity and joy in the process. And for all who've said no, I pray your blessing on them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. On your tables, you will see this feedback card. I'd love to just take a couple of moments now. We'll be back in a second with pudding and everything else. But if you could, everyone, just take their feedback card and pens have been provided. We would love to get your feedback, whether there are things we could have done better this evening that you would have preferred, anything that you want to feedback, objections, questions, all feedback is good feedback as far as we're concerned. Um, if you prayed the prayer that said, yes, Lord Jesus, come in, then please take count me in. That's what you'll be indicating, that you prayed that prayer for the first time if you take count me in. If you want to find out more, then just take tell me more. And the churches here in Farnham who've gathered together to put on this event will be in touch with you to see how best they can serve you and continue that conversation and of course, if you have any questions and feedback, just write it in with your contact details. We'd love to be in touch with you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll just take a couple of minutes of break. Great. I hope you have some questions. Um, let me introduce Dr. Callum Miller. He's a research fellow at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, where we both work. And um, I thought it'd be fun to have another voice up here on a, uh, on a Q&A panel. I don't know if it's a panel, if there's two of you, but there we go. Um, 
I'm afraid it's a it's a question of just shouting it out. If you have a question, if you could put up your hands, then we'll at least know where to look, and then it's easier to kind of see you and hear you. But does anyone have a question? Um, thanks for your talk, Steve. Um, I, I think um, it's very easy and fair to accept the idea that God gave man free will, and I think we're grateful that he did, and that a lot of evil and suffering that may result from is simply the consequence of that free will. However, what I often think is that um, suffering seems to fall disproportionately on the innocent. And knowing I was coming here tonight for this discussion, I saw something on the internet which was this. I quote, We are in a state of chaos. In the city in which I live, I hear and see examples of chaos almost every day. Little children are victims of senseless gun violence. Two years ago, 11-year-old Milwaukee schoolgirl Sandra Parks wrote these words in an award-winning essay about the murders in her city. On Monday this week, age 13, she was shot dead by a stray bullet fired into her home. And I just, you know, I find that hard to reconcile despite the concept of free will. Mm, I think that's a legitimate and a great question. Um, I'll start with an analogy. Actually, I, one of our students, one of the team who's here with us, used it earlier this week. I think it begins to answer at least something of it in picture form. She talked about how, imagine if I take a rock and there's just a sheet of glass, and if I throw it at that, that sheet of glass, it shatters arbitrarily. It's not that one bit of glass is more deserving of being shattered than another, but it might well be that some of it cracks more than other bits. There is something about the brokenness of this world that it isn't the case. In fact, Jesus makes explicit in the Gospels that suffering, and this is where it differs from Hinduism, where Hinduism says, if you're suffering, it's because you have deserved and earned that suffering. Christianity explicitly denies that claim. It says that suffering is the result of the brokenness of this world. And just like that glass that shatters, it isn't that bits of it deserved to shatter more, but it's the natural impact of that rock going in. I find it um, a comfort rather than a problem that suffering in that sense is arbitrary. I think I would find it more difficult if every time we saw a bit of suffering, we made the connection to that person deserves it, because that has all sorts of implications about the social justice outcomes of those things. But I don't know if you want to add anything, Colin. I can add just a couple of thoughts here. Yeah, thank you for a really pertinent and um, acute question. I think what I would say, so I, as Tanya um, said earlier, I work as a medical doctor uh, up in Manchester, but I live in Oxford, but I do quite a lot of work in medicine. And what I've found is that actually, one of the things we want to know most when we're suffering, and the people that I've spoken to who have been through immense suffering, uh, which almost always in the medical case is undeserved. Every time I speak to a patient, you know, it's not that they've done anything that they've deserved, it's that something has come upon them and that is painful and that is stressful and that distresses them and it distresses me as their doctor. And what I've found in terms of kind of being intellectually satisfied here, Tanya's spoken a lot about kind of how, how Jesus can show that God cares, but what I've found when thinking about what we need to know to reasonably believe in God or to reasonably believe in anyone who we think we can trust, is not necessarily why every single thing happens to us. We don't necessarily always need to know the details. 
So there are lots of things in the world that I don't understand the details of at all, but I would still trust them. I don't understand the details of aerodynamics, but I trust aeroplanes. And I trust them because I know that there are experts who trust them, and because I know that the people who I can trust say that they're safe, and because I've been there and, and experienced them being safe. Now, that's not an exact parallel, because some people have experienced God, and they haven't felt safe with God, and that's, that's obviously one of the most painful ways we can experience suffering, is not having um, felt safe with God in the past. But I want to just suggest that there are actually two things that most people look to when it comes to suffering. They don't want to always know why exactly has this happened. And in fact, in medicine, that's very rarely what people want to know. It's very rare that we want to know the exact detail of why something bad has happened. We want to know, firstly, that people care, that they're with us and that they share our burdens. And we want to know, secondly, that we can find some meaning in this, that there can be some way that this can be redeemed overall. And actually, what I think the story of Jesus shows is actually that, that this can make sense, that God can assure us of both those things. Because in other world religions or in other worldviews, it says either there is no God or God is indifferent or God kind of cares a little bit but doesn't share our sufferings. Christianity is one of the only religions that says God comes and he shares our sufferings. Just as a parent who comes to hospital with their child will share in their child's sufferings to show the child that they care. When a child comes in and gets a vaccination, for example, they can't possibly understand why they're getting it. And even if the parent tried to explain, they wouldn't be able to. And I'm not saying this is just a cop-out, easy answer to say that, you know, God works in mysterious ways, we just have to trust him. I'm saying that we do have limits of our knowledge. We can explain parts of suffering, but we can't explain the whole picture. And it might be that some of the details we don't get. But God assures us that he cares, and God assures us that he has a reason, because he comes and shares our suffering with us, just as a parent who comes to the hospital with their child suffers with them. And that's why we can trust him, even without all the details. But the second part, the second thing we want to know is that our suffering can be redeemed, that it can have meaning. And this, I think, is actually something that we, when we really reflect on our past, when we reflect on our whole story, we think is really quite profound. When we look at the, big, the, the most profound lives in human history, when we look at the most admirable people, the people whose lives we want to emulate, we in fact look and we find lives where things haven't gone smoothly. Sometimes they've gone much worse than others, sometimes they've had kind of fairly minor discomforts, but we always feel like the people we most admire are the people who have gone through that hardship and come out the other side and used it in a meaningful way. Now this doesn't explain everything, but I think it can give us a sense just of how, why God might allow suffering to come on the innocent as well. And, and as Tanya says, this is something that Christianity admits to and concedes. It says suffering comes on the innocent and they don't deserve it. And that's why we, we have such compassion for those people. But I think God has an amazing way of assuring us, firstly that he cares, but also that it can be redeemed and that it can have meaning. And the way he does it is this. He looks at the most cruel, gratuitous, pointless instance of suffering in human history. He directs us towards the first century uh, land in the Middle East, known as Israel or Palestine, and he picks out someone and he watches them go through a life, do everything perfectly, is the completely innocent person, a completely blameless person, goes through his life, is then betrayed by his friends, is abandoned by his friends, is humiliated, is stripped naked, is cursed by God by, by being so humiliated and being condemned to die, and is then crucified in the most shameful and painful way the Romans knew how to do. This is a paradigm instance of the problem of the innocent suffering. 
This is the most innocent person suffering in the most intense way, in all the most intense ways. And God might not explain the whole story, but he does explain this. He does say, this was the central event in human history. This is someone who tells the story, and someone who is part of the biggest climax in history. And actually, this story is a story that saves all humans. And it's a story that we go back to 2,000 years later. Our calendar is based on it. 2,000 years later, we have churches all across the world. We have 2 billion Christians in the world who look back to this story. We have many other people who look back to this story. Most non-Christians, most people who, who don't consider themselves Christians at all, look back at Jesus and say, that is a life well lived. That is an incredible story. That doesn't take away the pain, and I'm not trying to trivialise the pain and say, therefore, Jesus' suffering doesn't matter. I'm not trying to trivialise other people's pain and saying their suffering doesn't matter. I completely appreciate that. I just want to suggest that when it comes to resolving how God could possibly allow innocent people to suffer, this gives us a picture. Because it shows us that what we need to know, that someone is with us and that they care, and that our suffering can have meaning, God gives us the perfect example of those, because he shows us that he cares by coming to suffer with us, and he shows us that our suffering can have meaning, because he suffers, and he shows how his suffering has meaning, and quite profound meaning. And so my perspective is that when we look back in the end, and it's painful until we see the end, and I know that, and I've seen so many times how painful it is, until we see the end, until we see the big picture, until we see the resolution of the story, it looks painful. But I think God has given us just enough, not everything, not always everything to satisfy us, but he's given us enough intellectually, at least, I think, to see that the story can be a good one when we look back on it. And I think the story of Jesus helps us to see how that could be the case. So, yeah. Yeah, go on, if you wanted to shout out. Um, the question is, is it possible to practice Buddhism and be a Christian at the same time? Um, I think the, uh, the, the very simple answer where I'll land is that no, it's not. Um, the reason for that is because Buddhism and Christianity make completely contradictory claims about pretty much all the big questions of life. What is the nature of God? What is the nature of creation? Where did human beings come from? What is their nature and their value? What is the nature of suffering? And so unless you are wanting to hold two contradictory systems in your, in your mind, which would be an illogicality in terms of at least the level of the mind and the, the intellect, it would be impossible to hold both as true. You can say that neither are true, they contradict one another, so they can't both be true. You could say neither are true, or you could say that one or other is true, but you can't say both is true. And so if truth matters to you as a category, and even when we deny it at the level of the abstract, it tends to matter to us in real life, 
if truth matters to you as a category, that it would be impossible to hold not just Buddhism and Christianity, but any of the major worldviews of this world because they make contradictory claims. So that's, if you look at the level of just simple logic. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. Um, Christianity is built around a central analogy, which is marriage, relationship. At the beginning of the story, we have in the story of Genesis, that narrative, this idea that God created human beings to be in perfect relationship with him. And when we turned our backs on him, the first question that's discovered in that kind of the conversation, if you like, that happens between God and man is not what have you done, but where are you? And it's totally indicative of the narrative of the gospel, of the, of the story, the big, great big story of Christianity is the sense that it was relationship that mattered and it was relationship that's been lost. Where are you? The distance between God and man. And the whole of the rest of the Christian story is about winning back that connection, winning back that relationship, winning back humankind to be reconciled to God. And we're told that at the end of time, the destination, if you like, the, the end of this great story is that we end up back in perfect relationship with God. Those who choose to, those who say yes to him, can know what it is to go back to being face to face again. And the analogy that's used of that situation, of that scenario is the wedding feast, that one day we will be with him and we will be face to face and it will be a wedding feast. And I think the marriage analogy is helpful because if you're saying, look, can I have Christianity and Buddhism? It's like me saying, look, I'm married to Toby, but what's the problem of me loving John? When the heart of something is a marriage and a relationship, it's actually very appropriate that it be one and only. And we find that just in our normal human relationships. And it's the same with God. He actually demands to be the one and only. And that's not egotism or uh, a sense of self-love. It's very appropriate for me to say to my husband, Toby, I'll be your one and only, because in certain relationships, the very construct of that relationship is that it would be one to the other committed for life. And that's the relationship that God is offering. Buddhism offers a different destination point. It offers cosmic singularity. Christianity offers a relationship with God. It's a completely different trajectory that's being offered. I wonder if there are other questions. And the question is, do you think that we as a society are in danger of shutting out joy, being able to, uh, shutting out, being able to receive good news because we're just surrounded by so much bad news and surrounded by so much suffering? Do you want to go for it? I can, add I can say a little bit. It's, it's interesting you say that. So I, I have cousins from New Zealand. And last time one of my cousins from New Zealand came around, I would do that because I'll probably play on this But the, thing, the first thing he came around and he said, when he came to my house and we, we watched the BBC News at 6 o'clock news with big booming uh, sounds and da 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 this is BBC News. And he just said, 
your news is so miserable. <laughs> and yeah, and and I and then I looked, like you know, he showed us some New Zealand news, and it's just talking about all the great things that happened that day. It's just a very happy go lucky place. It was it was a really interesting cultural difference, but we, especially in England, we just kind of look for the bad stuff and. And in a sense, it's difficult to see why that is, but I think that does give us a sense that actually some things really are bad, and that most people kind of, although they might kind of go through life saying, yeah, things are decent, things are okay, I don't need God, um, everything is just kind of decent. There's, there's a very kind of, a very salient idea that people have of decency and of things being okay. And I think that actually is quite significant when we talk about God. Because God challenges us and says things aren't okay. Things there is a problem here. There's a problem of relationship. There's a problem of ignorance. There's a problem of suffering. And there's a problem between God and humans. But I want to repair that by offering myself for free to humans. And because we have this kind of idea that things are okay, we just kind of say, I didn't need you. It's not that we have a particular objection. It's not that we think there's hugely good evidence against God's existence in some cases. It's not like. Uh, history has disproven Jesus' claims about himself or the claims about Jesus' miracles. It's just that we think things are okay. And what I think actually our culture does, in a sense, I think it's, it's bad and it's not fully reflective of the world that you know our news, we turn it on and we just see misery, we just see suffering, we just see the bad news. And it's particularly English thing, I think. I think we, we as English people just... I'm not English. <laughs> <laughs> English people just thrive on misery, I think. <laughs> um, but I think what they do, this does show is it, it does in a sense show us something quite interesting, that actually we do have a painful sense of injustice, we do have a painful sense that the world shouldn't be this way. And actually when we turn on our TV, we don't see the same people saying, things are okay, we don't turn on the news and people say, suffer's okay today, we don't need God. We see complete suffering and misery all the time. And like I say, that's in a sense a particularly English thing, but I also think it's the reality. It's a place where the reality comes into our lives and says, things aren't okay. Even if we're okay, the world is not. And Jesus came to the world, and what he calls us to do is to be a part of that, and to say, I want you to help build my kingdom. And if you help build my kingdom and live for me, you can be part of repairing this, because I want to see a world where in the end, the book of Revelation in the Bible says, every tear will be wiped away. That's what Jesus offers, and that's what he says he will do, but he wants us to work with him in that. And so I think the news and the way we do speak in our culture about suffering, about evil, I think actually really tunes into that. Um, it can be a real stimulus for thinking, I do need to be a part of the, repair, the, the, repairing, sorry, the repairing process. I need to be part of this fix, and God invites us to do that, and he says, I want you to help me do that. So I hope that helps. Can you get the New Zealand news channel on Sky? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Or emigrate, all of us. <laughs> but it's worth watching, then. <laughs> um, suppose you have a Christian doctrine. Jesus died on the cross so that uh, we would be forgiven for our sins. So if I were to commit a sin in two days' time, how come Jesus, 2,000 years ago, Um, so the question is, um, 
the claim that's being made in Christian doctrine is that Jesus died on a cross in order that forgiveness might be offered to us for our sins. But if I commit a sin now or at any time, that's 2,000 years on from these events. So how is it that Jesus knew that that was the case? And, um, tentative about answering that second question of what kind of sin can I do? Um, I guess in a sense you're asking a question in some senses irrelevant to the cross. You're asking the question how can God know ahead of time what I'm going to do? Um, and there are a number of ways of thinking about this. There, there are different philosophical theories of how you might come to consider that situation. Um, um, one of the things, one of the ways in which Christian philosophers have talked about God and his foreknowledge, his ability to see in advance what we're going to do, is to talk about how time is a created thing. Time itself is not eternal, and that God lives outside of time. So all of our past, present, and future is the eternal present to him. He sees it as a glance. So I think it, that would be one very simple, well, simple, what is outside time? How can you wrap your head around that? But the idea that God is outside of time and sees immediately. I think a second correlative issue would be this idea that if God sees, does he then also cause? And I think that would be a relevant conversation in terms of who bears responsibility for these sins that I've committed. If he knows ahead of time, is he somehow determining those things? And the answer is I don't think those things go together at all um, in the sense that, you know, uh, I was speaking with somebody yesterday saying, imagine I see a car... Um, I see the driver get out the car and say to somebody, oh, can you watch my car? The brakes have just gone. I'm going to go and get some help. For whatever reason, I see the other person walk off and then I see a drunk man get in the car and start trying to drive off. I might be running to that car to, to stop what is going to inevitably happen. I already know that man is going to have an accident, but my foreknowledge of that did not cause that event. And it might be the same in relationships. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old not perfectly, actually less often than I would like, but sometimes I know exactly what they're going to do and it's not always good. <laughs> we can sometimes, really knowing somebody can tell you what they're going to do and I think it would be possible to reconcile both of the issues that are kind of in that kind of philosophical debate. I'm not contending, so... <laughs> <laughs> right, you'll notice I steered clear of the array of things that might... Any other question? <laughs> what are the parameters? <laughs> we have a question over here. Um, I guess it's sort of a follow-up to what you've written there in that um, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, how come we're still confined by sin if he did it for sins? That's a great question. Do you want to repeat it? Go for it. Yes, the question was if Jesus died on the cross for our sin, how come we're still confined by sin in a sense why sin is still a problem in our lives? Uh, I think that is a great question. Um, what can we say about this? I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have some thoughts to the last question and then try and weave this in. So there's a question of, you know, how can God tell the future? How does God know what we're going to do? I want to say a little bit about what sin is or about why Jesus dying on the cross is relevant at all. Because I think that's a problem that underlies a lot of our kind of 
thoughts on this. It's a problem that people have with Christianity. They just don't see why is it that Jesus dying on the cross removes our sin. And Christians have had a number of ways of thinking about this. They've said there are a number of ways that this could be achieved. But I want to make it just intuitive with one example. And perhaps this example won't work for you. There are other ways that Christians have thought about Jesus dying on the cross and why that is important to us. But this is quite a helpful analogy, I think. The analogy is this. Everything that we do wrong to other people has a cost. And when we do something wrong to someone else, someone has to bear that cost. So take a simple example. If I scratch someone's car, I haven't done so, I'm sure you'll have lovely cars in front. <laughs> I won't scratch your car. But if someone does scratch a car, someone has to bear the cost. Either the person who owns the car has to bear the cost by getting it repaired or by just having a car that's damaged now and just owning the kind of consequences of that. Or he can make the person who scratched the car pay for it, and that person has the cost. So all wrongdoing has a cost. And actually, if we think about it, when we think about our sense of justice, when we think about how we feel when people do wrong. If people do wrong and we just say, it's fine, it's forgiven, and do absolutely nothing, if nothing else occurs, if the end of the story, if the only part of the story of the resolution of that wrongdoing is just someone saying, it's fine, that's not justice, and that's not a, a restoration of justice. It's not what we want to see, and we think it means it's the wrong is trivialized. If someone does something wrong, then the only resolution we have is just someone saying, it's fine, it's forgiven. That doesn't mean anything. Because if no one bears the cost of that, then it doesn't mean anything. But actually, what Christianity says is that all of our wrongdoing does incur a cost. And we can either pay the cost for that, or God can pay the cost for that. And what Christianity says is that God has chosen to. God wants to take the cost of that so that we don't have to. And this, I think, makes sense of why Jesus would die on the cross. Not because he had to do it in that particular way. There's no kind of metaphysical law of the universe that says, for sin, someone has to die on the cross in the first century AD. But it's a, it's a window into what God is doing when he forgives us. It's a window into that action of God saying, someone has to bear the cost of this wrongdoing in order for us to take it seriously and for the victims to have their suffering recognised. And I will take that cost so that you don't have to. I will take it for everyone, for every sin they ever commit. And I will take that cost so that they can be free. Now, the question is, how does that fit in with sin still being a part of our lives? I kind of see it like this, and this is a way a theologian has put it. He talked about the end of the Second World War. I think it was the Second World War. My history of the, of the, the 20th century is actually not very good, but I hope I can get this right. E-Day was the Second World War, right? So D-Day, the war was over, in a sense. The battle had been won, the war was finished, the outcome was determined, and in a sense, the Allies had won. But there was fighting after D-Day, there were casualties after D-Day, there was suffering after D-Day, and that was the resolution of the rest of the story. And so the fact that kind of a victory has been won, that something has been kind of fully achieved, doesn't always mean that the kind of results of it will be just be cleaned up straight away. Sometimes it's a two-part process, and perhaps we can't identify an obvious reason why it's a two-part process. But I think sometimes that is just the way things pan out. And so the way I see it is that with Jesus, God has said at this point in history, the victory has been won. I have offered forgiveness here, I have taken on all the costs of your sin, and I've done it in this moment. And sin will still have some power, there will still be some suffering after that, there will still be a lot of suffering after that. 
but you can be assured of the result and you can be assured that if you trust me and go with me and you stay on this team, you will be part of the victory process. You will be part of the victory parade. And when I finally do clear everything up, when the war is finally over and God comes back and like I said, he wipes every tear away and he restores everything, Jesus says, because of what happened on D-Day, because of what happened on the cross, when everything is cleared up, where there is no, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, you can be part of me with that and you can have eternal life and you can have that for free. That doesn't explain why he does it in a two-part process, but it does give us the fundamental part of the story. And so I hope that kind of helps see how some of these things can be a two-part process. Um, but God gives us that assurance that he has won the victory and that we can be part of that when the victory parade comes. So I hope that gives really some a bit like Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit, yeah, the outcome is certainly not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there, just a, as a follow-up, though, to your answer, is there not one condition, though? It's not a simple thing as saying, well, you'll be forgiven your sins. First, you must ask forgiveness and seek redemption. Well, uh, so the question is, I'm just aware that people on the back might not be hearing, um, but it's not just as simple as Christ offers forgiveness. There is this you know, condition that we ask for forgiveness and that we appropriate that in our lives. And yes, I think that's correct, that the invitation is made to all, but it's up to you to accept that invitation. And I think there's a very simple reason for that, because the invitation is one to relationship. If you imagine um, in this world, if you have um, someone who has ultimate power and someone who has no power at all, and that person, the one with ultimate power, says, um, I want to be in relationship with you. And guess what? I've removed every obstacle and every barrier. All you've got to do is say yes. And the person says, well, no, I don't want to be in relationship with you. And the person in power says, no, no, no. I have removed the obstacles. We will be in relationship. And the little guy says, no. And the powerful guy says, no, we're going to be in relationship. I'm telling you what's about to happen. And you can imagine the outcome of that scenario that's not a scenario that we consider in positive terms in the real world now. It's interesting to me that we could imagine that that might be positive with God, that he offers the forgiveness, he removes the obstacles, he does everything in his power. But if we say no and he demands that it be yes, that turns into something quite different. So the obstacles are removed, the invitation is made, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's done everything that it would take to make possible the saying yes to that relationship, but he will not say yes on your behalf. Actually, I was remembering, just even looking in that painting before of Holman Hunt, one of the things I love about that story is when Holman Hunt presented that painting to, I think it was St. Paul's Cathedral, he gave it already framed, but years later, they took it down because it got dirty and they wanted to clean it, so they had to very carefully dismantle the frame. And they found hidden in the lining of the frame where no one was meant to see it, something of the narrative of Holman Hunt's own trajectory with God, how he had kind of run away from God for some time, heard that knocking on the door, but didn't open the door. And it was inscribed, the painting, with just the simple words, Forgive me, Lord Jesus, I kept you waiting so long. And one of the thoughts that occurs to me is that in this culture, we're a very rich culture, not just materially, although that too, but we're rich because throughout our lives in Western society, you hear that invitation. We get so many opportunities to 
to be aware of Jesus. Our culture is full of references. Of course, it's not the whole thing. Of course, it's rare to have these kinds of contexts where we talk so deeply. But all of us have had multiple times where someone has said to us, God wants to be in your life. He wants to be in relationship with you. I just wonder whether there might be some here. I, your story might end up being, forgive me, Lord Jesus, I kept you waiting so long. He's removed the obstacles. The invitation stands. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And the rest is up to us. But I'm very grateful that he doesn't force the yes, because that would turn into quite some different story. I don't know what time... We could carry on. Callum and I are here for five more minutes. Great. Are there any more questions? We'd love to take them. ask you to expand on your statement, your question a little bit. Tell me what parts of it you were struggling with. They will help us better answer you. So the question is, to go back to the, if you like, the, the, the nutshell of the philosophical question, if God is all good, all loving, he would want there to be no suffering, if he's all powerful, he'd be able to make that a reality, and yet suffering exists, and you'd just like a little bit more clarification on how that works together. Um, given that I've had one shot at it, do you want to take another shot at it? <laughs> I think here we go, and Christians have a lot of different answers to this. <laughs> That would be bad. More suffering. <laughs> exactly. Christians, Christians have a number of answers to this, and, and the fact that they give one answer doesn't mean that, that that necessarily is the answer. The Bible doesn't make it always very clear what is the reason for this suffering, how can we be consistent? And I guess there's, there's a question here basically of consistency, and the question is not can we explain every individual instance of suffering? Can we explain why for every given instance of suffering or pain or evil, can we give a full explanation of that? Can we explain exactly what's going on in God's mind? I don't think we can give that kind of answer, and I don't think we should expect that kind of answer. Just as a baby who goes for his vaccinations can't expect to be told why they're going for their vaccinations. There just are some limits of our knowledge. But there are some ways we can have an idea of why these things could be consistent. There are things that God gives us, or that kind of studying philosophy gives us, that show how they can at least be consistent. And just briefly to cover kind of two of these. So what is the idea of free will, which Tanya talked a, a bit about earlier? And the idea here is that the reason that can, one of the reasons there might be suffering, one of the reasons just to say there's no inconsistency between suffering and God's existence, is to say that God can't force free people to do what he wants because that's a logical contradiction. And so to force someone to freely do something just isn't logically possible. And because God can't do things that are logically impossible, God can't force people to freely do the right thing. 
But then if God wants to make free people because he thinks that freedom is a good thing, and having a relationship where people choose to have a relationship with God or choose to treat their fellow human beings in the right way, God at least has to open up the possibility that they will do wrong. And so that's one way why one kind of way we could explain how there's at least a possibility of evil if God exists. The other way, or at least one of the other ways that I think we can think about it is this, and it's something that I kind of tried to hint at earlier, and it's the idea of context. And the way I could explain this is by envisioning a painting. So suppose there's a painting and you see just one tiny part of it, and you see, you think, oh, that's disgusting, that doesn't have any shape, that doesn't really make any sense, it's nasty colour, I don't like it. That part of the painting on its own is nasty. If we look out at the painting, it might be that the whole painting is beautiful. And not only is the whole painting beautiful, but that part of the painting that we saw actually contributes to its beauty in some way. And that's not to say that the ugliness of that part of the painting was an illusion. It's not to say it's not really ugly when you look at it on its own. It's just to say that when you look at the whole story, it might be that the whole story somehow tells something more beautiful because that ugly part is there. And like I say, I don't want to demean suffering by that. I don't want to say it's an illusion. I don't want to say that if you just saw the big picture, things would be fine and you'd get the right perspective. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying when we see this, it's real pain, it's real suffering that we feel. But I'm saying that sometimes when we do see the overall picture, we can see how it fits in, and that is an important part of the picture. Now, one of the ways we can kind of link this to the idea of suffering, to the idea of good and evil, is by looking at particular actions. So suppose you see someone who just is enjoying himself, is laughing, and he's having a great time. What would you think? Is, is this a good thing? Yeah. Most, people would, most people would think this is a good thing. Maybe something would say. If we were in New Zealand, we would all agree that it was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so let's suppose you zoom out, and you see actually the person who's laughing, is enjoying himself, is laughing at a little boy falling over and injuring himself. It's not just that the person laughing is having a good time and that's a good thing and it's just outweighed by the little boy falling over and injuring himself. It's that actually him laughing and him enjoying himself at watching another person suffer is wrong. It's a bad thing. So pleasure on its own, when you just see it, you think obviously that's a good thing. Maybe it can be outweighed by bad things, but it's still just a good thing in itself. But actually when we zoom out and we see the whole context, when we see the whole picture, we don't even think that good thing is outweighed. We think it's bad that he is laughing, it's bad that he is enjoying himself. And so this is just an idea of how when you see something and it really might be good or it kind of seems good and, and it's real pleasure that people experience, when you zoom out it can be a bad thing. In the same way it seems possible at least, and I'm not saying this is true for every instance of evil, I'm not saying that evil is illusory, I'm not saying that the evil isn't really real and that people don't really feel that pain, but I'm saying that if we, in, if something that is just normally good, and we would all say it's good, when you zoom out and see the big picture you can say it's, you could see how it could be bad, it's just possible that when we have this suffering in our life, this real suffering, this real evil, which God doesn't like, and which God wants to fix, it might be that when he fixes it, and when we see the fixed part of the story, when we see the full picture, and the picture that is healed, the picture that is restored, and the picture that has had everything finally finished off, that's an important part of the picture. And that is an idea of just how suffering can be consistent with the idea of God's existence. Like I say, I'm not trying to say this is the reason for every instance of suffering, I'm not trying to say we can explain every instance of suffering, but it gives us an idea of why those things might be consistent. And as I suggested earlier, Jesus on the cross, dying for us, can give us the best picture of that. 
Because when we see that, we see someone suffering, this is a bad thing. And then when we zoom out, we see this is God offering eternal life to humans. In that way I explained earlier, with someone having to take on that cost. It's, it, can take your, it can take your head a little while to get around. It seems unintuitive in some ways. But when you put it into this story, I think it makes sense. And so God assures us by showing us an example of suffering, of real suffering, that needs to be looked at and needs to be, have compassion for. And yet, he says, zoom out and you see the whole picture and this is an important part of the story. And we look back at Jesus 2,000 years later and say, that is an important story. That is an admirable human being. Should I follow him? So I hope that explains it. Callum and I will be around for the rest of the evening, as will be other members of the OPPA team. We'd love to take more questions if you have them, but thank you for listening to us so patiently. It's been great to be with you this evening. Thank you.